and welcome to another episode of Monsieur Unitatis. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Elaine. Today we have a guest with us, Darren. Hello. So uh, Darren is Elaine's friend from NUS. And yeah, we, we did RCIA together, so we, we were received into the church together. So we, I, we go quite, quite way back. Yes, uh, he is a Protestant convert to the Catholic faith. So today he'll be sharing with us about his conversion story and based on what he knows about the early church, he can share a bit more with us about that and we can delve a bit more about the early church fathers uh, and what we can learn from them. So to begin, we can first start off with a prayer, the Veni Sancte Spiritus. We bless ourselves in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to this podcast, Darren. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, nice to be here. Okay, so Darren, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background, how you came into the church? So I, I studied history in uh, NUS. I did like Mongolian history, but I used to tell people I did Chinese history because it's just easier to explain how I came into the church. So I'm, I'm a convert from like being a free thinker when I was younger. I started when I was in J1. J1, I read Mere Christianity. It was a recommendation from a friend. I had a, you know, the St. Augustine moment, like born again experience. And after that, I was convicted of Christianity. I struggled for time trying to look for a church to go to, something that taught what Christ taught. So I was quite a bit taken by Presbyterianism, Reformed theology and stuff. As I grew older and when I entered uni, I struggled with the practical problem of the Bible. Uh, Sola Scriptura, a problem of interpreting the Bible, because in different pastors, when you go to different churches, they'll teach different things. And very difficult to determine uh, as a sort of uneducated believer who taught correctly. After I read Mere Christianity in J1, I continued on this course of like discovering Lewis's works. And then from there, I went and I discovered Chesterton, who is today still my favorite author and it's very hard to overstate my debt to Chesterton there are so many things which he touches on which I fundamentally agree with in how we view the modern life and how we view what the faith means for believers what the church means and he also provides a lot of uh, Catholic responses to you know modern problems like things like democracy things like history tradition uh, domestic classical theism and he referred at all times to, to how these ideas that he had are all taught most clearly in the in the church, in the Catholic Church. That sparked my interest in the church. Uh, so before RCIA, uh, I went on uh, exchange with Elaine. I mean, we went to different places, but we went in the same semester, and we had this discovery of like uh, Catholicism together. And I particularly uh, because I took uh, some courses on church history in uh, Toronto, where where I was studying uh, on exchange. Yeah, and then that really introduced me to Catholic history for the first time. Medieval, the medieval church, Reformation, uh, history, the early church. So that that's part of my interest. Huh? Sorry, just based on the note on Chesterton for our listeners. Would you have any book recommendations or do you come across any of his book titles in particular that might be interesting? If like we want to know more about Chesterton, what would your recommendation be? For Chesterton, 
I would say that um, if you want something accessible, you can read Heretics. Okay, just to give an, uh, a, a sort of introduction, right, to, to Chesterton. So Gilbert Keith Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, he was an English uh, journalist. Like he was born in the Victorian period, and then he died sometime, uh, I think, shortly after World War II started. And uh, so he lived in a sort of transitional period where a lot of modern ideas were gaining ground. Things that are actually very common today, like the first wave of feminist movement was, was started then, uh, the suffragist movement, uh, you have social Darwinism also starting then, uh, the eugenics movement, you know, a lot of these uh, modern ideas were gaining ground at the time. So he responded as a Catholic to all these ideas. And so Heretics would be a sort of base level, that's, that's the book that I started with. Um, that is the book where he discusses some of these modern ideas and why they are wrong. But if you want to go classic, the, the best modern apologetic work was The Everlasting Man. That's really the, the, the go-to ultimately. Um, but it's quite a deep uh, work. Lah. Yeah, but that, that would be another recommendation. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You mentioned about your semester at Toronto and how you discovered about the Catholic history for the first time. So how did this help you to be more interested in the Catholic Church and then find out more about the faith? Yeah, so I, I, can, I can tell you a quite interesting story. So and it's also quite embarrassing for how much I didn't know about church history at the beginning. So in my first week of exchange, I went to Toronto and... I was reading this book at the time uh, called Crusades by Thomas S. Bridge. So it was a it was a book basically giving a summary of of the Crusades as a as a historical event. And so I read this part when uh, at the time I knew nothing about the church, like very little about the church. So I read this part when they said that after the first Crusade they took Jerusalem, and then uh, after the Crusaders they got settled in Jerusalem, they uh, reported it back, and then they received the papal you know representative. So I read the point where they said that the first thing that the Crusaders did with the papal representative when the papal arrived was they celebrated mass so I read that and I was like what is mass so that really led me on a sort of discovery of what exactly the church practiced and why did like something like mass was so significant like be the first thing to celebrate on the holy land after they took uh, Jerusalem and then you know from there I discovered things about what the early church believed because the early church a lot of these things came from the early church right they, they were things that started during the early church period and then it never stopped, even the, into the medieval period, which is when the Crusades uh, happened. You mentioned about the early Christians celebrating this thing called the Mass, but it's not exactly written in the Bible. So how do you reconcile this fact with your faith? So the word Mass is not in the Bible, of course, because uh, Mass is from a Latin root word. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, so it's not in the New Testament. But we do have something that is written in the New Testament. After a lot of the Jews were converted to Christianity, we know that they did certain things, like there were some certain activities that they did uh, very frequently. So they gathered together, they they gave thanks, they broke bread. So this was things that they did very frequently. It's mentioned, for example, in Acts, when you uh, hit Corinthians, St. Paul also talks about like getting together and communion had a very specific uh, format. They would come together and then they would uh, recite the words that Christ did uh, during the Last Supper, like, this is my body that has been given up for you, etc. So all this was uh, done over this meal. And amongst the early Christians, this celebration was called the Eucharistic celebration. So that was based on the Greek word Eucharistia, which is Thanksgiving. And so it's basically this entire thing of gathering together, uh, giving thanks, breaking bread. And uh, later on, of course, in the church, we started to call it Mass after the words that were said by the celebrant at the end of the Eucharistic celebration. In like the later parts of the early church, when the Romans were persecuting the Christians, they had to celebrate Mass and then they had to leave quickly. So there would be a send-off. And so the word Mass is after the Latin word Missa, which is 
for that part of the send-off that the celebrant says at the end of Mass. What Mass really is, is the Eucharistic celebration, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist uh, occurs very frequently in the Bible. But the thing about the Bible is also that the New Testament does not really uh, describe things that Christians were doing all the time. If you investigate the issue like historically, when you look at the sources about what early Christians actually did, uh, I mean, if you, even if you go into like the archaeology of it, you see that what the early Christians mainly did was gather together, they broke bread, they gave thanks, and this was the centerpiece of Christian practice. The Christians, when they converted, most of them were Jews. Uh, Jews, you know, they ob- obviously they had Sabbath observance. So they were all observed of Sabbath, but on Saturday evenings, they would gather together to have this Eucharistic celebration. And these celebrations later gradually shifted to like Sunday mornings. But this was basically the centerpiece of like Christian community and Christian like worship. And that's mentioned in some a lot of the early works. Huh? Like you have the Didache uh, in the sense of uh, the Agape meal. And then you have St. Justin Martyr when he gives an explanation to the Roman Emperor about what Christians did when they came together. Because the, the Eucharistic celebration was, it was very private. Right, so ma- many people outside didn't know what Christians did when they gathered together. St. John Matthew, when he was explaining to the Roman Emperor, he described essentially the same format which we, we do have to eat today. Uh, they read the Fathers, right? Like, uh, and by the Fathers, they refer actually to the, the writings of the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles. And then after that, they you know, prayed, they exalted each other, and then broke bread, gave thanks, and then offered the bread. Then they ate the bread. So that was, that was the entire context. And yeah, St. Justin Matthew is very clear on what they did. So you mentioned a lot of like extra scriptural texts to support the liturgy of the Mass. Can you let us know more about what these texts are and the significance to the faith? Most Christians will agree that the, you know, on, on the canon of scripture and uh, so the canon of scripture, you know, all the latest writings that we have is uh, chronologically we have things like, you know, Acts, we have things like John's Gospel and then we have uh, the Revelations, right? They either, they either uh, describe chronologically what is the latest period, you know, which is after Christ died, that would, that would be Acts or else they are written the latest, so like St. John's Gospel uh, and, and, and Revelations. But of course the church didn't end there, right? So even after the, gospel, the apostles uh, passed on, um, they continue produce, producing writings. Many of these writings, even in the in the church, we don't like the Catholic Church. We don't regard this as canonical or inspired. Like for historian, they are gold mine because they provide a lot of context for what the early church continued to do and practice. Right, uh, things which there aren't as clear indications in the in scripture alone. For example, one of the things I, uh, I mentioned was the Didache. It was a early, basically a catechetical work, uh, a summary of all the things which Christians ought to do. So in the past, when the Jews converted to Christianity, there was not really a great deal of theology. Right, so the early works concentrated on just what Christians have to, had to do and it was like quite bare of theology. So the Didache is one of these, uh, it's catechetical, it just describes what, what Christians did. So it has some important like descriptions of the Eucharistic uh, celebrations, what they prayed and stuff like that. In the time of Didache, it was uh, celebrated as a meal. Uh. So there was, it was an actual meal, people ate and then they were, they were full from the meal, like dinner sort of thing. But that slowly also shifted. So that was the Didache. And I also mentioned uh, St. Justin Martyrs. So apart from the apostles, after the apostles passed on, there were like um, people in the Christian communities that were like sort of theologically inclined or they were sort of more, they had more influence. So they were maybe like uh, some of the early bishops, leaders of Christian communities in specific uh, places. St. Justin Martyr was one of them, uh, but he was a lay person, but he was uh, quite smart. He was philosophically trained. So he was one of the first genuinely Christian philosophers. And uh, he had, quite a lot of connections with like the imperial establishment 
during the time when the Christians were persecuted, he wrote uh, several to what we call today the apologies, right? So he was the first person to write apologetic works, works that basically defend the faith and uh, explain and defend the faith, what the, def- the faith was about. So he wrote uh, these works uh, and addressed them to the Roman emperor. But from the works themselves, he also gave a very broad summary of what Christians did and what they believed. So, and it was a very clear summary. So, and because it's written to an outsider, it's also very thorough. You mentioned St. Justin Martyr had written very clear doctrines for the early church communities to follow. We know that even in Christ, in, in Jesus Christ, his, uh, the time that he was living, uh, when he mentioned about the quite controversial topic about the, the Last Supper and the breaking of bread, and he mentioned this is my body given up for you and this is my blood. He meant that the wine was actually his blood. And actually some of the apostles upon hearing that, they even left because they couldn't really believe it. So I mean, um, in Justin Martyr's time, was there any Christians who also didn't really believe the doctrines, even if it was so, even if it was so clear? Okay, what you're referring to actually is quite an interesting uh, historical like a rule like a rule uh. so generally speaking historians if they see a docu- see a document and it's a set of norms they will say that if you have to write norms like if you have to lay down a set of norms it means that there were people not following it uh, yeah so for the early Christians that was also true it is a current uh, like academic debate about whether what constituted the the orthodox Christian community what what constituted Christians and non-Christians but in general, um, we know that there were a few like heretical communities, uh, um, basically people that didn't believe what the mainstream, uh, uh, you know, Christians believed in, and um, so uh, Saint Justin Martyr, of course, represents the, the the mainstream one. So his account is a description of like the Eucharist. What does it represent? These are all like quite mainstream opinions. But then some of the a lot of the early church fathers also uh, gave us accounts of what certain uh, Christians didn't believe in and accordingly their practice also was different. We can start with the, the Judaizers. So the Judaizers were a community that is actually mentioned in, in parts of uh, the New Testament. So things like Acts and Galatians. These are the Jewish Christians that the St. Paul was arguing against when they were discussing the issue of circumcision. So the Judaizers were the Jewish Christians that basically believed, continue believing in the provisions of the Mosaic law. So things like circumcision, halakhic uh, uh, observances, etc. Sabbath and all kind of stuff. Uh, the Jewish Christians, because they, they, the, the first converts were Jewish Christians, so they believed that the Christian practice was just um, uh, like on top of Jewish practice. So there's no reason why, for example, like Jewish observances should stop. Many of the epistles that St. Paul wrote was in argument to these like you know Jewish Christians. So the, these Jewish Christians, they were, most of them were based in Jerusalem and the foremost leader of this community was uh, St. James the Just, uh, also known as the Lord's brother. So, uh, I mean, he does come up a few times uh, in the Acts, for example, and some of the epistles. Basically, like they, they all had Jewish background. They, you know, they had very firm Jewish understanding of the Christian faith, but they didn't give up the Jewish observances. And circumcision, especially, was an important uh, like element. 
later on when the temple was uh, destroyed in 70 AD right uh, then there was that uh, like the Jews the Jews all sort of fled Jerusalem they went overseas and they continued like uh, being active then, and they, they sort of became more and more uh, heretical so in Galatians uh, we see that uh, like St. Paul was arguing that the, the law was not the thing that made uh, the Jews like righteous St. Paul actually anticipates a lot of these uh, arguments that uh, the Judaizers and later um, they became known as the Abionites um, after the Hebrew word for poor, poverty like the, the poor the Abionim they had this idea that Jesus was a man and he was a, but he was a man that followed the law most closely so if you follow in his footsteps right if you if you did what he did then you can attain salvation so the revolution of Christ was the revolution it was a moral revolution right he it basically consists it's like a merit based thinking right it consists of what you can do to achieve salvation and and the example the foremost example was uh, Christ so so this was the rough sort of te- teaching that was one camp of heretics uh, what they thought then of course there were the, the another camp so the Ebonites they were mostly like uh, Christians of Jewish background right uh, and so that was their, their background but um, there was another camp of um, heretics that were more like of Gentile background uh, in the Greek and Roman context which was where like Christians the Christianity was getting its converts from um, I mean Christianity is really a Gentile movement so in the sense that like the you know gradually the Gentile converts outpaced the remaining Jewish Christians right so uh, when you have more and more Gentiles the church started to accept more and more Gentiles like of different backgrounds and in the Greek and Roman context a lot of these backgrounds were like the classic pagan mystery cults so they had very very strange beliefs about the relationship between knowledge and like uh, mystery and like um, ethics and stuff like that so and one of the common themes uh, for a lot of these mystery cults was that religion basically consists of a set of like sacred knowledge right and then you will be inducted into this like sacred knowledge once you become a, like you became a member of the religion the word for knowledge was gnosis so this theme of like secret knowledge and like induction was also carried on like carried over into christianity because uh, like for the early christians the christian community was also like i mentioned earlier very private so uh, you know you only a certain number like only the uh, catholics like only christians could view like could participate in the liturgy like if you want to become a christian you had to undergo like a very long uh, process of education like you had to learn what the doctrines were and stuff like that that's the catechumenate the ancient catechumenate because there were some superficial similarities between this and the sort of induction into like mystery cults like a lot of christians thought that you know it was just like another mystery cult right it also came from the east right because it was, it was from jerusalem so it's, that's considered east in relation to rome so a lot of these uh, like uh, greeks and romans they thought you know it's like a, just another mystery cult and then their, their focus was basically on like um, secret knowledge and how christ came was a bearer of secret knowledge and then you know um, uh, they learned this secret knowledge and that's how they attained uh, salvation um, but they had a very uh, they also had a dualistic uh, uh, tone so they didn't really believe in um, so a lot of them were like platonists or like dualists so they didn't really believe in the goodness of the material world but when they came across the, the doctrine of the incarnation they were quite stumped because the doctrine the whole doctrine of the incarnation is that God who is an, this utterly transcendent creator of the universe came down and became man became imminent in the world from their sort of like platonic dualist background uh, it was a radical suggestion it was really a radical suggestion 
uh, in order to reconcile this suggestion, some of them said that incarnation was sort of fluke, like it was sort, it was sort of like a illusion, right? Like it didn't really happen. It's just that it appeared that way. But we, we how we under, really are to understand it is that God didn't really take on like human or material form. Right, so of course, from that, that comes the, the word docetists. So the they were the docetics who uh, they believed in that the incarnation was an illusion, and that's after the Greek word dokesis, which is for illusion or appearance. So these were the two groups of heretics, and essentially they denied different things about Christ. So the Abenites, of course, denied his divinity. They denied that he was God, while the the docetics, the Gnostics, they denied that his uh, humanity. They denied he was human. Yeah. And so these heretics, they, they, because they challenged uh, like the early Christian communities so, so much, they set the grounds for what became the, the great debates of like the 3rd and 4th centuries, the, the Christological controversy. Like what exactly is Christ? Was he a God? Was he God? Was he a man? And uh, how do we reconcile, if he's, if he's like God and man, how do we reconcile the fact that uh, the nature of God and nature of man are so radically separate in reality? So you actually mentioned earlier that in the early Christian community, in the breaking of the bread and the Eucharistic procession that they practiced, the epistles and the gospels were actually read to them uh, in order to inspire them and educate them into the life of Christ. And so we also know from St. Paul's uh, letter to Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and correction so that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. So even though like scripture can be complete uh, and good for Christians, then how come there would still be uh, different interpretations of this same scripture that was being read out to the early Christians? I mean, it's actually precisely because uh, they were reading the same accounts. Like these various Christians, they had came up with different ideas of, like, who Christ was, because uh, the the scriptural accounts. I mean, they so yes, by this time, um, they there was a set sort of like a commonly common list of uh, like gospels and epistles that were being read in most of the Christian communities around the Mediterranean. But the thing about the gospel accounts and and the epistles, right, is that they are not it's not immediately apparent how some of these passages so they have a lot of passages that describe Christ but it's not immediately apparent how these passages can be reconciled so there are, there are passages that talk about Christ in uh, in what seems to be a subordinate relationship to God the Father so you have uh, like passages where it talks about how um, God the Father sent Christ right he's the one sent by you know the Father not the other way around passages that talk about Christ praying to God the Father um, you have passages that you know when when Christ was asked, when Christ was uh, described as good, a good teacher, he he responded saying, uh, "Why do you call me good? You know, no one is good but uh, God alone." So that there's there's this set of passages that are like that, and then there's also another set of passages that uh, that seem to like establish Christ as on the same level as God the Father, right? So the uh, so the classic text of course is First uh, John, uh, John. The first chapter of John, um, where he where he says like you know in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God, right and the word obviously referred to Christ. So then there is a sense. So then there's a question like how do you reconcile these two paragraphs, right? Like is Christ God, right? If he if he existed before all time, or was Christ man because he's praying to God? So that's not it's not very clear. And some of the early heretics, of course. 
they leaned one way or another. So one of the most significant uh, like early heretics was this man called uh, Valentinus. So he accepted all the scriptural scripture as, as inspired. But his ideas, they were still... Uh, I mean, he was a Gnostic. So he had ideas that were sort of uh, strange. And they, were, so they, were, they weren't really Christian ideas. He had this uh, uh, dualistic uh, conception of man. So there were some like men that were material, some men that were spiritual, and then they could attain to salvation in different degrees. So yeah, his, his ideas were weird. So they were not, they were not uh, orthodox. So the early fathers were quite perplexed as to how to argue against someone like Valentinus. Right. So, I mean, there were earlier heretics like Marcion, for example, where they rejected certain Gospels. So if you reject certain Gospels, it's quite straightforward, right? Like, you, you can't be a Christian if you reject certain Gospels. Uh, but if you accept all the Gospels and all the epistles, then how do you say that, how do you distinguish between uh, the ones that were teaching, you know, a certain set of ideas and then ones that were teaching a quite radical set of different ideas? The classic argument, of course, that was leveled against Valentinus and um, which of course we now take as the, the best argument was done by St. Irenaeus um, in his work uh, against heresies. So St. Irenaeus, he was a bishop uh, of Lyons uh, uh, in France, but uh, he was originally Greek, he came from Smyrna, so he was very concerned with a lot of these like, heretical uh, teachers and he wanted to argue against them. With Valentinus, that was the particular challenge. How, how do you argue against a teacher that accepted all the Gospels and all the episodes as accurate, as uh, inspired? So for him, he had a novel idea. So following St. Ignatius, because at that time, um, in his time, most of the church churches were sort of established, right? You have like Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, and these uh, uh, churches, they were headed by bishops, right? So, and most of them, they were like uh, single bishops administering the entire diocese. So these bishops, they, they were the main teachers of their diocese. And how the bishops had any authority at all was because they were originally ordained by bishops and then bishops going up all the way to the apostles and then going up all the way to Christ, right? So there was an unbroken sort of lineage from the Christ to the apostles to the uh, bishops. But of course, this was not just ordination, it was also teaching. So Christ taught the apostles and then apostles taught uh, the bishops, right? So for St. Irenaeus, it's quite simple. So all these bishops everywhere in, in you know, the, the universal church they all had a common understanding of what being a Christian implied, the doctrines that uh, involved in the Christian faith. So that was the, the rule of faith, like the regular fide, right? That's how we have the things like the Apostles' Creed. For St. Um so all the bishops, they were in agreement all across the world. And uh, how we know that a teacher is teaching something heterodox is if he taught something that the bishops, okay, had never heard before. Because if the bishops uh, obtained the teachings from, you know, previous bishops who obtained the teachings from apostles who obtained the teachings from Christ, and then they never heard this teaching before, then obviously it's not from Christ. This was something that was obviously relevant to St. Irenaeus himself, because St. Irenaeus was taught by St. Polycarp, uh, and St. Polycarp was in turn taught by St. John. And then St. John, of course, was, you know, apostle of Christ. So this, this principle was operative even for someone like St. Irenaeus. So St. Irenaeus was the one that, uh, from which we you know, first have this clear principle of apostolic succession. He was the first person who wrote, it in clear, wrote about it in clear terms. So all of that uh, you mentioned just now happened within the first 300 years of Christianity? Yeah, so um, by, I mean, actually St. Irenaeus, that's his first 200 years. So um, St. Irenaeus, apart from talking about this, uh, you know, arguing against Valentinus and talking about apostolic succession, um, he also was the first person that uh, did Christology. 
right? He he. Uh, after that, he also gave a sort of account of how to view uh, God as both. Uh, sorry, how to view Christ as both God and man. And then from him, uh, later later thinkers are all just building on his ideas. And um, he set the background for what came to be uh, the Council of Nicaea when the bishops of the church uh, met together to produce a, a firm and final statement on the, the, you know, the substance and the nature of Christ, the God-man. Right, and and that of course is the Council of Nicaea is also of course the 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 time when we have they developed the doctrine of the the Trinity, right? The idea that you know the three persons of God are are equal, they're consubstantial in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing um, and giving the listeners here just uh, a good summary of and the background of uh, the development of the early church since the beginning of Christ and the apostles. In our own understanding, there is. Also, a form of like gap between our practices today and also uh, what happened actually uh, after the apostles uh, have handed down, and and how that continuation kind of leads on into our current practices today. I'll probably just want to close off with maybe a last question to you uh, in your own personal life because you are a history major. So actually, all the accounts that you shared earlier about the early church were all mostly historical accounts and they weren't actually uh, theological uh, understandings. So how has the historical accounts that, uh, of the early church actually helped you practice your Christian faith today? I think the question uh, was phrased best, best by uh, Peter Craft. So he's uh, this Catholic writer. I mean, he was once asked this question about history, like, uh, you know, the picture of, of history, like church history and how it affects like belief. And he, he realized that the question boiled down to this, this essential uh, point. Like if you take a Protestant, you take a Catholic and you basically transport them 2000 years in the past and you put them in the early church, um, who would feel more comfortable? Uh, would it be the Protestant or would it be the Catholic? And that's how you know, you're like, uh, which one is true and so I, I, a friend of mine uh, also told me this, this same thing right uh, where you have a question of I mean so the, the, the history of the church is in, in, in a certain way um, how is that useful like for us like as a modern believer to me the answer just boils down to like you know a few questions the first one is if you have uh, you, you, you have heard about the early Christians they have practiced the you know there was a certain particular way in which they worshipped God. They so they broke bread. They had the Eucharist, right? And not only did they do this, but they also had a very clear understanding, right, of what that meant. Then of course the question becomes: so whatever I do today, right? And you know you know across the denominations there are, there are a lot of ways to call it, right? Uh, Catholics we call it the Eucharist. There are others who call it like you know the Holy Communion or like Lord's Supper and stuff like that. So th- th- this practice does exist outside of the church. But then the question is does my understanding of this practice or does my church's understanding of this practice was it the same as the early church's understanding right because the early church was informed by Christ they were taught by Christ to do this right do this in memory of me so there was a very specific injunction to do this thing but this thing do this in memory of me what was this thing that that they were to do right so that was what the early church continued but 
the question then is, you know, as as a modern believer, is what I'm doing, is it the same as what Christ taught the apostles and his disciples to do? So then there's another question, of course, that that like since we're talking we've talked about scripture, right? The the question is like so you you have we've gotten these accounts, right, the gospels and written by the apostles, right? But there are serious issues like with trying to understand how the gospel what the gospel is teaching. Right, it's not perspicacious, right? So you have uh, parts of it that really, you know, argue in a certain way or, or suggest certain things about Christ, and then there are parts of it that sort of suggest other things about Christ, and that's just like on Christ alone, right? You, you, you we haven't even touched on things like you know church governance, etc., right? So then the question is like, you know, are we are we able to read and understand what the ch- the gospel wants us to do if you just read the gospel alone? That's the question, yeah, and and yeah. That, that is the thing which um, when you read the history of the church you see that you know, the struggles that they had in uh, um, you know trying to resolve these problems uh, that really defined what the church became um, you know when we hit the council of Nicaea right uh, and all the arguments that they had that they made all along the way um, you know regarding like apostolic succession etc all of these are related to the challenges that they faced when they were trying to apply certain principles in certain ways Thanks again, Darren, so much for sharing your your experiences and your expertise into the early church fathers. Um, in retrospect, I think within this uh, time frame, even though we weren't able to like cover every aspect of early church fathers and, and how the doctrine uh, developed into the Catholic Church today, but at least it gives us uh, a good overview of like the early church. And also, if you're interested in uh, the early church fathers, uh, we can explore more into St. Irenaeus and St. Ignatius's uh, writings to help to develop our own faith understanding also and a better appreciation of uh, the liturgy and what the church believes through that. We would like to end off with a final closing prayer um, which is called the Subtuum Presidium and this is actually the earliest known um, devotional prayer to Our Lady. This prayer was uh, known to have been uh, said by the faithful in the third century. So, Darren, would you like to lead us in the closing prayer, please? Sure. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. We fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers. Glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.